0: Thank you, guys. If you have a Bible, please turn to Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. We are working our way through the book of Daniel this summer, and we have been examining the book of Daniel through the lens of understanding that Daniel is the historical account of God's people living in exile. Daniel is the historical count of God's children, his nation, living in a foreign land. And the reason that's been important for us as the church is because we too recognize we are also living as foreigners and aliens in a foreign land. We believe and we recognize that this place is not ultimately our home. Our home is As a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, our home is with our Lord and our Savior. And so what's been happening as we've been walking through Daniel, we've been learning how we as aliens and pilgrims should respond as people living in a foreign land. Last week we saw how Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they responded with courage standing in the face of this 90-foot-tall statue they were asked to bow down to, and they showed us that real courage is not just strength unbridled, but real courage is faithfulness to God no matter the cost. And so we talked about how one of the needs for foreigners and aliens and pilgrims living in exile is for courage. We've looked as we've gone through the book of Daniel at a number of dangers. Last week was physical danger. But the danger I want to unpack this morning from chapter 4 is much more sinister and deadly. It's a form of spiritual danger we face. The danger we're going to examine this morning is so dangerous, so deadly, because it is all around us, and in fact, it is in us. The danger we're going to unpack this morning is the danger of pride. If I were to hypothetically ask all of you to raise your hands, if you struggle with pride, every single one of us would have to raise our hands. Oh, you guys, some of you did it. Thank you. I tried to throw the hypothetical in there. Some of you are ready to confess. We do. We struggle with pride. don't no, It's real. Pride is a result of the sickness of the sin of our hearts. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to expose us to the danger of Pride. I want to show us what it is and why it's so deadly for the human heart. And then I want to talk about how we can respond and kill pride in our lives and grow and foster and encourage humility that that God calls us to. How can we kill pride and foster humility as God calls us to? That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you've turned to Daniel chapter 4 verse 1 would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word the reason we stand is every time we read this it's as if Jesus is here speaking to us and I'm a firm believer that if Jesus were here speaking to us we would stand in honor of what he has to say to us so that is why we're doing that Daniel 4 <clears throat> starting in verse 1 we're just going to read through half the chapter through about verse 27 Daniel 4 1 says this King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how, may, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 4. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Church, look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and it's an interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived verse 22 it is you O king who have grown and become strong your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that the heaven rules Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you please pray with me? Father, what we are desperately seeking in these moments is not to hear from me. God, we want to hear from you. God, would you please remove distractions? Would you please open our eyes and our hearts? Would you please illumine our minds to see and to hear and to live your word? And God, as we do so, would you help us not just to be hearers of your word this morning, but would you help us be doers? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. So you can divide this passage of Scripture into kind of two scenes. The first scene, we see a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. A warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. One of the things that's interesting about this passage of Scripture, I don't know if you noticed, it changes in the tense. Chapter 4. Is primarily told from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Now, you remember Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, most powerful king of the most powerful nation of the known world at the time. Chapter 4 is written from his perspective. That's why you're going to see the first person pronoun I, 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 I. You'll see that all throughout chapter 4 because Nebuchadnezzar is telling Daniel, as he's recording this under the inspiration of the Spirit, to put this letter as a part of Daniel's book to us, that God's preserved for us. About 30 years have passed between the fiery furnace and this account in chapter four. So Daniel at this point is about 50 years old. It's very easy to kind of get Daniel isolated as a young boy, but Daniel did indeed age in his captivity in Babylon. And by the time chapter four rolls around, uh, Daniel's about 50 and Nebuchadnezzar is in, is nearing the end of his reign as king of Babylon and he has a dream it's not uncommon Nebuchadnezzar had had dreams before and so when he has a dream and he needs help figuring out what the dream means he does what he always does he calls together his counselors his magicians his astrologers the Chaldeans he calls this group of people together and he says interpret this tell me what this means And as has always been the case through the book of Daniel, all the way back to pharaohs, magicians, and enchanters in Egypt, they come up short. They can't deliver. They can't figure out the mystery that's really behold Nebuchadnezzar, that's in his dream. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes to the bullpen to his tried and true counselor. He calls up Daniel. And Daniel comes out, he's described as this one that has the spirit of God within him, because Daniel, over time, has proven time and time and time again that he can make sense out of these mysteries that God shows Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel meets with Nebuchadnezzar, and he begins to describe the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as we just read a moment ago, he sees this massive tree. And this tree is so big that it covers the world. In fact, you could see it from any spot on the globe. It's tr- the tree is that tall. The branches are that long. And Daniel tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, this tree that you see is you. Your kingdom has become incredibly powerful. Your kingdom is covering the known world at the time. You are the tree. But there's a problem. In the dream that you saw, there's an angel that comes down and announces that the tree is going to be chopped down. And there's going to be a judgment that's going to be announced over this tree. Daniel has the painful position of having to tell Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to be judged. And the judgment you're going to feel is you're going to go out of your mind. Crazy, Looney bin, nuts. Because what's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar, is you're going to take on the mindset of an animal. You're going to live with animals. You're going to eat with animals. You're going to sleep with them. You're going to wake up with them. You're going to be driven out of your mind. And you're going to think for seven years that you are a beast of the field. The reason, Daniel tells him, all of this is coming on him is because God wants him to know that all this stuff that he's been given was not accomplished by his strength or his might. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that he's the one who's given him every single thing that he has. So just kind of summing that up, here's what Daniel's telling him. Daniel's warning him about the pride of his heart. Daniel's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't turn around, if you don't turn from this prideful exaltation of yourself, judgment is coming. Look back at your Bibles in verse 27. This is why he tells him, look at Daniel's counsel. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God is warning Nebuchadnezzar through a dream that he is opposed to the proud. This is the principle you and I need to glean from this first scene of the story. Here it is. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The lesson you and I need to glean from what we're looking at in the book of Daniel here is that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace and mercy and blessing to the humble. What is pride? What does it mean to be prideful or proud? It means that we exalt ourselves. Pride is self-exaltation based on on a lie. Pride is self-promotion, putting ourselves on a pedestal, and the pedestal is grounded on a delusion and a lie that we think we're in control, that we think life is all about us. Pride is self-exaltation built on delusion. It shows up in a lot of places in our lives, doesn't it? Pride manifests itself in manifold different ways one of the ways pride shows up in our lives is through arrogance just pure thinking that we are better than everyone else comparing ourselves to other and using that comparison as a way of exalting ourselves another way pride shows up in our lives is through entitlement entitlement that we think we deserve for everything to always go our way and for everything to be easy and comfortable. If there's probably anything that's more rank and prevalent in our culture today, it's the attitude of entitlement we deserve, we should get. Another way arrogance and, and, uh, excuse me, another way pride shows up in our lives is through self-sufficiency. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, that person is a self-made man or she's a self-made woman. There's no such thing because we think pridefully that we don't need anybody else. We don't need anybody's else help, much less God's help. Now, the way that pride shows up in our lives is through taking credit that we don't deserve, through taking praise and honor and glory and worship from things and accomplishments we have that are actually things that she's using to praise God. Or maybe most dangerously for me in my life, the way pride shows up, is in pity parties. Anybody willing to confess that every once in a while they have a pity party? Okay, we got a few confessors back there. That little group back there is confessing some sin. So you guys will see all after the service, okay? Uh, Pity, right? Pity parties. Man, things didn't go my way, and I'm just going to kind of mope around for two or three days. A pity party, at its core is me assuming that everything should always go my way. It's pride. It's me saying, when things don't go my way, I disconnect, I pull back, I'm gonna look inward rather than recognizing that maybe some of the circumstances I'm in are for my good and for God's glory, even if they're difficult. Listen to what pride is at its core. If you drill pride down, listen to C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, which I would commend to all of you, C.J. Mahaney, his book, Humility. Listen to how he defines pride. Pride is when we aspire to the position of God and refuse to acknowledge our dependence on him. Listen to that again. Pride is when I aspire to God's position so, pride at its core, if you drill down past all the symptoms and all the nuances of how it expresses itself in our lives, pride is when I assume that I should be in God's position, that I'm the center of my universe. And it's when I fail to acknowledge that I need Him. Pride at its core is spiritual rebellion against God, it's spiritual insurrection. So so one of the questions I mentioned at the beginning that I want to unpack at this moment is, why is pride so dangerous? Because when I embrace pride, I'm embracing spiritual rebellion. When I embrace spiritual rebellion, I set myself opposed to God. Why is pride so dangerous? Because at its core, God is opposed to spiritual rebellion and insurrection. In 1787... There was a British merchant ship called the HMS Bounty that left England and was on its way to Tahiti. It's on its way to Tahiti and had a particular mission of gathering some resources and some plants and some crops. They were going to transplant from Tahiti to another part of the British Empire. It was a long journey from England to Tahiti, but as the British sailors got to Tahiti, wouldn't you find it interesting that they really liked it there? It was sunny and it was nice and they were there for six months and during their stay in Tahiti, some of the men really began to enjoy living there. In fact, some of the British sailors enjoyed living there so much that in the six month period of time, they, some of them even took wives and began to start families. Well, they forgot that they were sailors on a British ship. They were under the service of the crown. And so the commanding officer, a commanding officer named Bly says, no, we're not staying here. We're going back to finish our mission. We get some all back on the boat. They've all got suntans and they're ready to go back to cold, stormy, rainy England. Spot somewhere along the way as they were journeying back, the men decide they don't want to go back to England. One of their officers, a fellow by the last name of Christian, organizes some of the sailors and they take over the ship. It was called the mutiny of the bounty. Some of you may have heard of that famous mutiny. The the men organize this hostile takeover. They run into the commanding officer's Uh, uh, his office and his, his bedroom there and they stick guns in his face and say we're not letting you tell us what to do anymore we're turning this ship back around for tahiti so with armed intent they take him and the people that were loyal to him somewhat 18 sailors they throw them on a little lifeboat and they send them to england and they turn around and head back to tahiti One of the most famous mutinies in naval history. In fact, there's been a book that's written about it, several movies that have come out about it because it was so traitorous and evil. Here's what pride is, okay? Pride is a spiritual mutiny, okay? Pride is when I stick a gun in God's face and say, I'm taking this ship over. Pride is when I exalt myself, I promote myself to God's position, and I say, "Move over God, I'm going to be the center of my universe. I'm going to start shearing the ship, steering the ship the direction I think it needs to go." Why is pride so dangerous? It's because I'm assaulting God's position as God. God is opposed to the proud, but look at the next part of that phrase on the screen behind me. He gives grace to the humble. The remedy for pride is not just the absence of pride, the remedy to pride is the presence of humility. Okay, well, what's humility? If pride is self-exaltation based on a lie, humility is exaltation of God based on the truth. Real humility is worship of God for who He is, acknowledging my position as a supporting character. If you think about God's world and the world we live in like a drama, God is the main character and I'm a supporting character. C.J. Mahaney, still in his book, Humility, he defines humility this way, and I think it's helpful. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Real humility, listen again, is honestly assessing myself in light of God's perfection and holiness and in light of my sinfulness and need for him. So I think one of the mistakes we can make is when we hear humility, we think modest, meek, quiet, kind of reserved person. But biblically, humility is not a set of dispositions that are maybe unique to a set of personality. Humility is a disposition. It's a way of viewing the world that says, this is who God is, and this is who I am in light of that. So the great need for us, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, the great need for you and for me this morning is to kill pride in our lives and foster and encourage humility. What we've got to do as the people of God, if you're a believer this morning, if you're an alien and a pilgrim living in a foreign land, one of the ways we live faithfully as aliens and pilgrims is to kill pride and foster humility. What I want to look at for the rest of our time together this morning is talking about how do we do that? If this is what pride is, and this is what humility is, what's the bridge from pride to humility? Before we unpack that in the rest of chapter 4, I just want to come out for air here for a second and ask you a question just as we apply what we've already discussed together this morning. If indeed pride is so dangerous, I just want to ask you, where in your life this morning... Are you struggling with pride? Where in your life, what are the places in your heart that you struggle not to promote or exalt in yourself? Notice I didn't say, if you struggle with pride, I said, where. Do you struggle with pride? Some of us, it may be very obvious things, right? Some of us may be like our cars or our stuff or our homes or our bank account or our retirement. But I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it's a lot more subtle than that. Sometimes the thing I struggle the most not to find pride in are the good things God has blessed me with. It is so easy to value the blessing more than the blessor. It is so easy to value the gifts that God gives us more than we value the giver of those gifts. This is why I attack the prosperity gospel every chance I get. It's like a hobby for me. I don't I don't like going after people in their ministry just because I want to do it because I'm some kind of killjoy, but people like Joel Osteen, people on the TV that are telling you, if you just believe enough, you'll have everything you want. That is elevating gift above giver. It's elevating, blesser above, it's elevating blessing above the blesser. What we have to be careful of is that we don't allow ourselves to be prideful about the good things God has given us. What do you have that you can be prideful about? Said another way, what do you have that God isn't the source of? Let me just clear the air and level the field here. There is nothing in my life that I have that doesn't come from God. Nothing. Well, you don't know what I can do at my job. You haven't seen the kind of skills and ability and mind that I have. Who gave you all that stuff? Did you put in an order for that before you were born? and say, here, I'd like to have these color eyes and this hair and this ability and like to be able to run this. You didn't do that. Well, you you don't know about the family I've got, how loving we are, how great we are. Did, Did you put that together? Can you take the credit for those things in your life that are good? The reason pride is so deadly at one level is because it deceives us into thinking that we did this. We put this together when in reality... God is the one who's given us every good thing that we have. Where do you struggle with pride this morning? We must be people that recognize our prideful tendencies in our lives, and we vigorously, vigilantly try to kill it and to foster humility. I want to turn our attention to the second Kind of scene of this story and talk about that. I want to look at Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and his restoration. And as we do that, we're going to discover how we kill pride and we foster humility. We're going to see the bridge from pride to humility. Now I want you to watch two things as we read the second scene of this story. I want you to watch God's response. Okay? I want you to watch what God does, how he reacts to the events in this story, but I really want you to zero in on how Nebuchadnezzar responds to God. And specifically, I want you to watch the progression and development and changes in Nebuchadnezzar's response and attitude towards God. Here's what I want you to know. As you watch God's response and Nebuchadnezzar's response, we're going to see the bridge from pride to humility. Look in your Bibles at verse 28, and let's watch this unfold. Daniel is going to start telling more of the story here. We'll go back to Nebuchadnezzar in a moment. Listen to what Daniel says. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, watch this church, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my And gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. 34. At the end of the days, watch the shift in tents, I... Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Listen to this ode of praise he gives. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Verse 36 At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here's the answer. The bridge from pride to humility is the grace of God and the repentance of man. God's grace And our repentance is how we move from pride to humility. We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking those two things. Grace of God, repentance of man. I don't know if it came across to you, but God has been incredibly gracious to this pagan Gentile king all the way through the book of Daniel. Not just in chapter 4, But starting in chapter 1, I mean, consider God's goodness and grace to Nebuchadnezzar in allowing him to defeat the nation of Judah. Chapter 1 makes it very clear. Nebuchadnezzar didn't defeat Jerusalem because he was tough. God gave Jerusalem into his hands as an act of judgment over his people. God gave him victory. Not only did God bless Nebuchadnezzar with victory, God began to bless Nebuchadnezzar with dreams that were going to be a foretelling of the future that was to come. God paid him the compliment of showing him what was to come, and he didn't just do that. He brings him a young Jewish boy, Daniel, the only person on the planet that could tell him what these dreams mean. God graciously gave him that despite his rejection of him. God's grace continued as you read on. God graciously allows him to threaten his own children, even as he's building a 90-foot golden image of his false God. God doesn't destroy him on the spot. God allows him to do that, and God allows him to see his power on display as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are preserved in the fiery furnace over and over and over again God is gracious and kind and then again God gives him a dream a warning he tells him what's going to happen he brings Daniel to show him what it means and he warns him to turn around and even when Nebuchadnezzar doesn't God graciously brings judgment into his life he brings discipline into his life has it ever occurred to you that the discipline of the Lord is the most gracious thing that he can do many times Because God's discipline, seven years of insanity, as Nebuchadnezzar lived with the cattle and the oxen, lead him to repentance. Did you notice it? Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And when Nebuchadnezzar repents and turns to God, God graciously restores him back to his position. This is a pagan, Gentile, idolatrous king that knows nothing of the promises of God. And God is lavishing on him grace and mercy. Church, listen to me very carefully. Reject the lie that says the God of the Old Testament is mean and angry, but the God of the New Testament is loving and kind. No. God is a God of grace from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Our God is a God of goodness and grace and kindness. And he graciously allows Nebuchadnezzar to come to a point of seeing who he really is. That should be a foundation for you and I to extol the grace and goodness of God in our lives. Consider that every one of us enter this world pridefully exalting ourselves. We're arrogant boasting in our own abilities. We're self-sufficient. We don't think we need anyone. We come into this world entitled, thinking everything is about us. We come into this world whining and complaining about now how everything goes our way. We are people that are prideful to the core. And God is completely justified in destroying every single one of us because he's perfect and just and holy. But he didn't do that. God's grace doesn't lead him to destroy us. God's grace leads him to love us in our pride, in our arrogance, in our entitlement, in our self-sufficiency. God loves you and he loves me. Well, how do I know that? Because he sent his son to die for you. See, the penalty for our pride is death. Jesus comes He never has pride in his heart. He never disobeys God's commandments. And he offers his life as a perfect, beautiful, innocent substitute for all of my brokenness. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's taking what I should have gotten. He's taking what you should have gotten. One of the ways we kill pride in our lives is by beholding the goodness and the richness of the grace of God. When I look at everything through the lens of God's grace, I realize I need him. When I look at everything that I have through the lens of the goodness of the gospel, I remember that I didn't put all this together. Left to myself, I'm alone, cut off from him. God came and sought me out in my pride, in my selfishness and arrogance. Mark Dever has rightly said, that the grace of God, the gospel, is not just our ticket into heaven, but gospel is the food we continue to eat. I don't know where this malfunction in my life as a young child, but when I was growing up in church, I got this idea that coming to Christ means that I repent and I trust Christ like when I was younger, and then I kind of live my life however I want. What these passages of Scripture remind us is if we're going to kill pride and foster humility, it's only going to happen if we continue to reflect on and preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is not just our ticket to heaven. The gospel is the food that we must continue to eat. So if you're a believer here this morning, let me just give you a practical encouragement. One of the ways you and I can kill pride in our lives Is by dwelling on, remembering, preaching the gospel to ourselves. I'm a sinner that needs Christ's forgiveness and grace. Some of you here today may not be Christians, though. You may not know the Savior that I'm speaking of. I want to talk to you just for a second if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ. Becoming a Christian is not something you're born into, it's not something you get by kind of being close to other Christians or because your grandparents were Christians or because you go to church a lot. Becoming a Christian means there's a response God calls you to. And that's the second part of this bridge I want you to focus on with me for a moment. The first way that we bridge from pride to humility is by beholding the grace of God. But the second way that we move from pride to humility is by repenting of our sins. Repentance is a killing of sin in my life. It's turning from sin and lies, and it's an about-face towards truth and righteousness. You see, behind every little cove of pride in my heart is a lie that I'm building this exaltation of self on. Repentance is the process of replacing that lie with the truth and saying, I'm turning from this lie that says I'm entitled to getting all this stuff, that I'm arrogantly better than everyone else, that I'm self-sufficient and don't need anyone else. I'm replacing that, I'm turning away from that, and I'm embracing the truth that actually I've been created to worship and praise God, not to worship myself. I need God, not just when I first came to know Him, but I need Him every day. The way I kill pride in my life is through repentance. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, the way that you first receive the goodness and grace of God that we're talking about this morning is by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ. It's not a magical incantation you pray or some phrase that you have to get just right. It's the desire of your heart to acknowledge your sickness and your problem and that Christ has the solution. That's how you come to know him. I believe in this passage, while there's some debate among commentators about what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar, I do believe that what we're reading about, especially in verses 34 through 37, is we're watching Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. I don't know if you noticed back at the beginning of chapter four, verses one through three, It started with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. It started with him extolling God's virtues and his glory. Have you ever watched a TV show where they start at the end? They show you the ending at the very beginning, and then the rest of the show is showing you how they got to that point? Chapter 4 started with Nebuchadnezzar praising God, and we're left to wonder, how in the world did he get to that point to where he's extolling the virtues of the one true God? It's because God brought him to his knees. And he responded in repentance and trusting the Most High God. Repentance of our sin and trust in Christ is not a one-time activity. Repentance is to mark and characterize the life of a believer. You'll hear me say this often at Riverview. The church is not a place for perfect people. It's not. We're broken. We make mistakes. We sin. We have disappointments. We have failures in our lives. The church is not a place for perfect people. But the church, the body of Christ, is to be a place for repentant people. In other words, when I'm exposed to my sin and my deception and my pride, that I turn from that and trust Christ again. How do we move from pride to humility on a daily basis The bridge from pride to humility is beholding the goodness and grace of God and responding in repentance and faith. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I wanna pray for you.